Hi. Before we get going, we've got a small request for you. If you're listening to this podcast in the UK, we're running an appeal for our work with Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. If you would like to support the work of our medical teams in Bangladesh, go to msf.org.uk slash podcast. That's msf.org.uk slash p-o-d-c-a-s-t to find out more. Thank you. Before in Burma, things were fine for us. We were, well, we went to Madrasa, we studied Arabic. The monks didn't do anything to us at that time. But when we became older, the monks would begin torturing us, beating us, forcing us to pay bribes, taking people away. Then the war started, so we came here. My mum and dad came to Bangladesh first to find medical care. There were four of us left at home. I was the eldest male. We had to leave the house because they threatened us. We had to hide and escape through the hills. If they caught us, they would kill us. When we arrived here, I couldn't find my parents. After eight or ten days, I found out they were at the MSF hospital. I had never left the area where we used to live. Then I came here and didn't know anything about here. You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. Welcome to Everyday Emergency. I'm Nick Owen from Doctors Without Borders. The words you just heard were those of Ishmael, a 14-year-old Rohingya refugee from Rakhine State in northern Myanmar. Facing extreme violence and persecution in his home country, Ishmael is just one of the hundreds of thousands of people who have fled to Bangladesh since August 2017. For now, Ishmael remains in limbo, living under a makeshift shelter within a sprawling refugee camp in an area of southern Bangladesh called Cox's Bazaar. Ishmael is a Rohingya, a stateless ethnic group often described as one of the most persecuted minorities in the world. They are a mostly Muslim group who have lived in a majority Buddhist Myanmar for centuries. But Myanmar's authorities have repeatedly claimed that the Rohingya are Bengali immigrants who moved to Myanmar in the 20th century. As well as denied citizenship under Myanmar law, the Rohingya lack basic services and opportunities such as freedom of movement, healthcare, state education and civil service jobs. While there's been an influx of Rohingya refugees into Bangladesh since the 1970s, A campaign of violence by the Myanmar military in Rakhine state in August 2017 sparked the largest single exodus of Rohingya. Since then, over 700,000 have fled to Bangladesh, with the majority setting up shelters in already overcrowded refugee camps in the Cox's Bazar region. My initial reaction when I arrived at Cox's Bazar was the intensity of the number of people that's Chrissy McVeigh, an MSF nurse who returned from Bangladesh earlier this year. And at first you don't realise that actually there's refugee camps there because you feel you're just in a busy, busy part of Bangladesh and all of everyday life is going on. But actually as you get closer to Kutupalong Clinic, which is where MSF has had its long-standing programme, you see snippets of the refugee camp through the trees and then actually when you go through the markets and you enter the camps they and stand on a hilltop, I remember just looking around and thinking, this is so enormous, it's the most enormous camp I've ever seen. 
and it was unlike any other refugee camp I'd seen. This camp laid itself out in the undulations of the hills and then around on the edges you could just see all the forest um, and remembering that actually it was so new. It was only been established since August. More than one year after the exodus, we're continuing to deal with the unique and ever-shifting challenges that come with providing healthcare in the world's largest refugee camp. The sheer size and density of the camp, combined with uneven terrain and lack of roads, poses its own obstacles for MSF staff. I remember being incredibly hot, it was nearly 37 degrees, and just sweat pouring down my back, and you could spend all day just walking, because walking is the only way to access the camps, and I, on average, covered 17 kilometres a day just by walking around because there's no other way in. But it was just the enormity. For water and sanitation expert Ryan Bellingham, the size and layout of the camp meant having to transport heavy tools and equipment and dig wells and latrines exclusively by hand. The, the biggest challenge was actually accessing the population. Um, the area in Cox's Bazaar that the Rohingya are now living it's a very hilly, mountainous, it would have been jungle, um, a wooded area, um, and quite inaccessible. Essentially, nobody's been living there, nobody's farming the area. Um, it was really inaccessible. So to reach the population in the western part of the camp before the road access, which is, which is now really taking hold, um, we were employing and hiring a huge number of people to move um, equipment and materials into the camp. Ryan was sent to Bangladesh shortly after the crisis erupted as part of MSF's emergency response. In situations like this, MSF first responds to the immediate medical needs, providing treatment for injuries, caring for expectant mothers, or feeding malnourished children. But very quickly, other needs start to arise. As well as food and shelter, people need access to clean water and latrines. That's where Ryan and the water and sanitation teams come in. Bangladesh as a, as a country, particularly the region of Cox's Bazaar, water is available, access is possible, but um, it was getting access to the population, such a densely populated area. Um, so our response there was a lot of emergency sanitation. We started water trucking immediately from one of our existing wells at the clinic, and the team started uh, implementing emergency sanitation, so essentially constructing latrines uh, for people to use hiring contractors to start drilling water wells to provide access to the population. For a, for a million people, a million refugees in, in such a crisis setting, generally you're looking for a latrine for every 50 people. Um, so you're talking a huge number of latrines to reach a million people. Uh, in terms of water supply, to reach 20 litres per person per day, um, that's 20 million litres. Uh, it's, it's a huge volume of water. But simply providing enough water and latrines for the camp is just half the battle. To prevent the spread of disease, wells and latrines must be built in the right locations as well. One of the most striking things when I first arrived is still people drinking and drawing water from open, open wells. Um, an open well essentially being a hand dug pond or, or puddle as we would call it here. Um, could be anything one metre deep, two metres deep and allowing the groundwater to seep in. And again, I think back in Myanmar, in a, in a less densely crowded area, a viable water source at times when it's protected properly and you know it's away from human 
uh, footfall and away from um, animals. But here in this dense camp to see people drawing water from essentially an unprotected source where open um, defecation was happening not so far away, uh, it's really quite shocking. Poor water and sanitation poses a huge medical risk to people in the camp, causing waterborne diseases such as acute watery diarrhoea, cholera and hepatitis E. With a population living in such close proximity with one another, um, waterborne disease is, is really, it's a, it's a highly likely risk rather than just a potential um, without adequate sanitation, without adequate um, hygiene promotion and also the provision of hygiene materials, soap, um, sanitary products. W without these basic um, provisions, the, the risk of an outbreak in this kind of setting is really quite high. The knock-on effects of poor sanitation and living in such a densely populated area are seen in the health conditions presented to our staff in our clinics. So a lot of the problems, um, the health problems that we're seeing in primary healthcare are respiratory diseases, um, skin diseases that are made worse because of the cramped living conditions. Um, and for example, people build fires in their homes to cook, so that results in a lot of respiratory infections. Um, so they're the kind of things that we're seeing in the camp and primary healthcare. That's Sunny Laval, a nurse activities manager. Sunny has just returned from her first mission with MSF, where she managed health posts in Kutapalong camp. There, Sunny would also see the everyday health issues that affect any community, alongside those that arise from living in a camp. In the hospital, there's a maternity ward. We see, see a lot of pregnant women, um, a lot of paediatrics and mental health services and referred um, sexual and gender-based violence um, survivors to the clinic. Um, involved a lot of contact with people in the camp. It's great having that contact with the people that you're trying to help. Um, and I think you, it motivates you. The rapid influx of refugees into Cox's Bazaar in August 2017 prompted the expansion of Kutapalong and Balukali refugee camps, merging into what is now known simply as the Mega Camp. After the influx in 2017, um, it had been in the news a lot and knew there were a lot of people. Um, I expected to find a very big refugee camp. I think the biggest shock to me was just I couldn't believe how big it was. I couldn't wrap my head around how many people um, were displaced in such a short period of time and that were now living in this camp unable to move. In, in the health post, I managed three and there were about approximately 100 patients a day, 100 to 150. Um, and that changed day to day, but the clinic, in the clinic, which was just outside of the camp, I think in outpatients department, they used to see, I think, three or 400 a day. So big, big patient numbers. To deal with the needs in the mega camp, MSF significantly increased its presence in the area. As well as water and sanitation projects, we opened new primary and secondary healthcare facilities and increased our number of staff tenfold. The population of refugees living in Cox's Bazaar is now nearing a million, and over half of the camp's inhabitants are children. The low vaccination coverage for Rohingya children coming from Myanmar, combined with poor living conditions within the camp, led to an outbreak of a disease rarely seen in the last few decades.
and which many doctors had only read about in textbooks. Diphtheria is a, a illness that we just don't see in the developed world anymore because we're all vaccinated for it. But it's a bacterial disease that, if you contract it, um, releases toxins that give some awful, horrendous side effects that can include a bacterial sort of film across your throat and cause respiratory distress. It spreads rapidly amongst uh, tight communities, particularly those that are in refugee camps. And fatality rate is quite high if, it's not a, if people aren't treated uh, appropriately. To the astonishment of medical staff working in the camp, patients began arriving with symptoms of diphtheria. By December of last year, the outbreak had peaked with roughly 6,000 cases reported, most of whom were children. To reduce um, the spread of the disease, every patient that contracted diphtheria may have shared a house with 15 or others, or been in contact with 15 others, and so those people would have to be traced and vaccinated against uh, the disease to try and reduce the spread. And on the back of that outbreak, then obviously the World Health Organization, WHO, and the Ministry of Health wanted to do a vaccination campaign to reduce disease burden. Um, and MSF was key and important part of that campaign. And so my specific role as the vaccination coordinator was to go out to work in collaboration with the Ministry of Health and WHO to get that campaign underway. With the Bangladesh Ministry of Health, Chrissy and her team were faced with the monumental task of coordinating a vaccination campaign for some 350,000 children against diphtheria. Thankfully, a number of proactive parents were also keen to see their children protected against the disease. At the time, it's the biggest campaign globally. The target group for the diphtheria campaign was every child above six weeks and every child under 15 years. So that was an enormous demograph. Um, and the figure for that was, for the whole camps, all of the camps in Cox's Bazaar, was 350,000 children. So that was our target group. Um, to vaccinate them over a three-month period with three rounds, so four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks. And so I came in contact with many, many children under the age of 15 and an enormous amount of parents who had huge concerns about their child contracting diphtheria. And so that motivated them to bring them to the vaccination sites to get vaccinated against the disease because they'd seen the awful cases and the fatalities that the disease had caused. The challenge of getting people to the vaccination sites meant it took 10 full days for Chrissy's team and the Rohingya outreach volunteers to sweep through their part of the camp. Every single day we had 65 vaccination teams and the teams consisted of about 10 people per team. But then we had to coordinate the outreach volunteers, the Rohingya volunteers, who were incredible. We had about 300 MSF Rohingya volunteers who were out mobilising the population with their megaphones, liaising with the uh, Mazi leaders, the, the community leaders, to come to the vaccination site. And each vaccination site, each six, 65 of those sites, every vaccinator had to give 450 injections during that one day to be able to achieve our figure, which was on average we had to do 25,000 children a day. For Chrissy, the campaign was a huge success, not just because of the scale of it, but because of its longer lasting impact. 
for me, I, I mean, I love vaccination campaigns because I think they're an incredibly positive thing because not only, like in Bangladesh, not only were we vaccinating against diphtheria, diphtheria is only one disease in the vaccine that we're protecting a child against because we give them a vaccine called pentavalent, which contains five vaccines in one injection. And so you know that actually it's not just the diphtheria that you're protecting them against, and that's a lifetime gift. And so at the end of it, I always feel enormously proud and particularly proud of MSF for this campaign because it was so huge. It was so challenging for MSF this time to work in collaboration with the Ministry of Health, WHO, for that to be such an incredible, positive working relationship to achieve the results that we did at the end. I was really emotional and incredibly joyful because you can't not be because you know you've done something incredibly positive. Much of MSF's medical work in the mega camp involves treating the physical symptoms of the Rohingya crisis. Injuries, infection, disease. But there are less visible symptoms as well. My name is Asmatullah. I fled from Myanmar to Bangladesh. When I left from my house, at that time, Myanmar government surrounded our villages. I started a gun shoot. Myanmar government forces slaughtered our Rohingya Muslim people. My brother was shot at uh, by Myanmar government. I witnessed. Many of the Rohingya who fled their homes in northern Myanmar have experienced unimaginable violence. The burning of their villages, indiscriminate killings of neighbours and family members, torture and sexual violence. Asmot's brother was one of an estimated 6,500 Rohingya who were killed in a month of violence in Myanmar. That figure, a conservative estimate made by MSF, also includes at least 430 children under the age of five. What Asmot witnessed left him with painful trauma and nightmares about what he experienced back in Myanmar. Providing counselling and mental health facilities is a crucial part of MSF's work in a situation like this. Here's MSF nurse Sunny again. You can see that people are traumatised when you talk to patients or provide patient care. You can tell that they've been traumatised and some of them have physical scars but also emotional scars. The trauma caused by that is really becoming evident now. I think some of the mental health counsellors now that are working for MSF are kind of reporting the after effects of this. You'll see little things that will kind of trigger a realisation of what these people have been through. Um, so it will be um, an overreaction to an event by someone that's caused by trauma. Um, you'll see someone break down by something that you, that you wouldn't necessarily identify as traumatic and you realise that that's um, post-traumatic stress. The shock is wearing off and people are... They're frightened, they're becoming angry, they're becoming frustrated, and there's no, the future is bleak. There's no, there's no certainty about the future. Um, they don't know whether they can return home. Um, mental health counsellors in that context are vital to help people cope with this on a day-to-day -day basis.
As well as employing local staff in Bangladesh, MSF also relies on the help of committed Rohingya volunteers. With the return home to Myanmar looking increasingly unlikely, MSF's Rohingya volunteers are working towards improving the long-term healthcare of their community. Here's Chrissy. It struck me about the Rohingya volunteers working for MSF. Many of those Rohingya volunteers had worked for MSF in Burma before, so they were very knowledgeable of MSF. They're very well educated, many of them spoke really good English, many of them, and absolutely dedicated to do the best for their community. And their workload was huge. In fact, I would say of all of the MSF medical activities in Cox's Bazaar at the moment, the people that actually do the majority of the, the groundwork are the Rohingya volunteers um, because they're not only looking at vaccination campaign work, they're looking at long-term immunisation activities, they're collecting mortality and morbidity data for our epidemiologists, uh, the anthropologists. Their workload is enormous, incredibly patient and, and work above and beyond because they knew how important it was. And they were incredibly proud to be associated with MSF. So proud. Due to the terrain and layout of the camp, an ambulance service for transporting seriously ill patients is impractical. So Rohingya volunteers also have the vital role of navigating ill patients to MSF facilities. Sunny managed the stretcher bearers who would carry critically ill patients to the hospital. We also have in the outreach team many volunteers that worked for MSF in Myanmar um, and they're helping with health promotion, um, helping with contact tracing when there's an outbreak and generally being the eyes and ears of MSF in the camp. They have so much experience um, both from their work within when, when we were in Myanmar but also in the camp. Um, they form networks, people trust them um, and they are incredibly positive. Um, I think a lot of them are pillars of their community. They're managing to stay positive and kind of think positively and move forward in some way in a situation that seems impossible. I think both the volunteers and the Bangladeshi staff are the backbone of what we're doing out there. Um, they're crucial to our work. And I think we're managing to do what we do because there's so many highly motivated people working for us. Speaking with Sonny and Chrissy, it was clear that the collaboration between MSF staff and the Rohingya volunteers was what left the strongest impression on them, as well as, of course, the warmth of our patients. I go to work in London and get on a packed tube and I turn up grumpy and there my morning commute involved walking through the camps with children shouting hello, goodbye and how are you. You know, adults will stop you in the camp um, and, and try and speak to you. You can speak to patients. Um, and people, they're really resilient and they're, I've got nothing but admiration for them. After everything they've been through, I just think they're amazing. You can really see the benefit of the work that we're doing out there. I think that is the most rewarding thing. Um, people are also very grateful. They are frustrated, sure, with their situation, but they're very grateful um, that you are there and that, and that you're trying to help. So that's very, job satisfaction is big in that front. A lot of people are very forward thinking and try to remain positive. I miss joking about with them in the camp. I guess it's the job satisfaction. You can see the benefit of what you're doing straight away. You can see the need, you can see how MSF's addressing it. And 
Um, having that amount of job satisfaction every day is is great. Beach trying to get to work on the tube here in London. <laughs> Working alongside local staff and volunteers as part of the diphtheria vaccination campaign provided Chrissy with one of her standout memories of working in Bangladesh. We were almost on the last days of the third round of the vaccination campaign. So we were literally going across this enormous refugee camp and we're collecting the stragglers to try and make sure that we get the best coverage we could possibly get. And we had the Rohingya volunteers with us and we had their community leaders and we had the vaccination team, Bangladesh vaccination team, to march around a refugee camp in the heat of the day at 12 o'clock, nearly hitting 40 degrees, sweating buckets, carrying vaccine carriers, and with me shouting that there's gonna be more out there, we've still got to find them. And one of the Rohingya stood with the microphone at the top of a hill, and he began to sing a local uh, Rohingya song to call for people to come out for their vaccination. What began as a vaccination campaign soon turned into a friendly competition. And it became a bit like a sing-off because after he'd finished, one of the Bangladesh guys, my vaccination team, said he could sing much better. And he stood on the top of this hill and he got the megaphone. And they're really loud. And just standing back and looking at these two guys, one Rohingya and one Bangladesh, just calling the, the sort of... Uh, united objective to get the kids to come be vaccinated, singing these songs to call for them and it just echoing down the valley. Um, they're the memories I never ever forget with MSF and represents that, just that moment in time when you look and you go, I can't believe I'm hearing and I'm seeing this. And it bridges every single divide, all the thoughts that we have about, you know, cultures, countries not mixing or People do. People are good. Most people are good. So, what next? Since the mass exodus of refugees in August 2017, the population of the mega camp has stabilised. But this isn't a long-term solution. The Rohingya are denied citizenship under Myanmar law, and in Bangladesh, the government refused to grant refugee status for them. The Rohingya remain stateless and in limbo. Without guarantees of the same rights as Myanmar citizens, they're reluctant to return home for fear of persecution. Living in the camp, they're unable to work, and their children are cut off from education. For the Rohingya in Cox's Bazaar, their lives are on hold. I had several conversations with people about the prospect of going home. Some people, it's heartbreaking because some people are still talking as if they're going home soon. You know, can I have this so that when I go home I can show this? Um, some people are realistic, I guess, in the fact that they can tell that there's no hope of going home anytime soon. It's home somewhere they want to return to. There's, there's a lot of persecution and violence there. Um, and But yet they can't move from this ginormous camp where their possibilities are limited, if non-existent. The atmosphere in the camp is changing, I think, slowly. There's less 
of a fight and flight, the, the shock is wearing off and people are realizing that this is now going to be their situation and they don't know how long for. And then when, as you start to see people also realizing that they're stuck and that they don't know what the future is going to hold and that this could be their reality for the next year or for the next 10 years, they just don't know. Um, that's heartbreaking. It was those moments of recognition about the reality of the situation that Sonny found most difficult. You work day to day and you kind of normalise it just so that you can get on with it. And then you'll see something or experience something that it kind of hits home then, you know, the reality for these people. I remember one day there was a a three-year-old with a bag of rice on his head coming back from the distribution and I was walking behind him completely naked, no clothes, and I and I saw this all the time, but I suddenly thought, this is this is not normal. Like this is my normality now and this is the normality in the camp, but this is not okay. So you get moments where it hits you what the situation is and um it's it's bleak and you can't see an end to it and you feel um, sad, angry, frustrated. But I think what is also great is that you get to see how people are coping and getting on with their lives. Charities and NGOs working within the camp are striving to provide services that should be fundamental human rights. But it remains a struggle. I think a lot of people are extremely grateful um, that organisations like MSF are there it also makes you very sad, though, when they're so grateful that, that they're having to be that grateful, if that makes sense. Um, should be a fundamental human right that they're safe and have access to healthcare, um, and it's not a given at all. There are learning centres in the camps where children can go a couple of hours a week. What they learn there is very basic, so you walk through and they're so resilient, but you just look at them and think, this is going to be... How many generations are you going to lose here that have no education and no prospects? Because there are no schools as such, and so there will be lost generations if they can't go back. What struck water and sanitation expert Ryan was the lasting strength of a people who have endured such abject suffering. For a population to be so inherently peaceful through what they've been through, I, I find it utterly remarkable just remarkably resilient and it's it's such a poor way to describe um, a strong population like that but we've seen it we've seen it in the early days when they settled themselves and were building shelters supporting the community we see it now during the rains a house gets washed off the side of the the hillside and everyone's putting it back together it's it's, it's such a strong population if it wasn't the situation would be much worse in late October 2018, Bangladesh announced that an agreement had been made with Myanmar to begin the repatriation of Rohingya refugees, a process that would see them return to Myanmar. However, the United Nations Refugee Agency has stressed that any returns must be voluntary and that necessary safeguards for the Rohingya must be put in place. It's always hard to tell in these situations, um, during negotiations, what could happen. But discussing with the population, discussing with the people, there's not a lot of a trust or willingness to, to relocate immediately. Um, there's still a strong push from the community that, that the, the, the basic demands they put in place are met. The more conversations I've had, 
really everyone is telling the same the same story. They're they're scared of involuntary relocations or repatriations, I should say. Um, for sure, the camp isn't a desirable location. It's not an easy existence, but it's it's somehow better than the other options available right now. With no realistic solutions to the crisis, the inhabitants of the mega camp face an uncertain future. It may be years before the Rohingya are able to return home to Myanmar safely, and now the initial humanitarian response to the crisis has ended, there's a real danger that the displaced Rohingya in Bangladesh may be forgotten. There are lots of NGOs in the camp at the moment, but the people's needs still aren't being met. There are just so many people. Um, I think a lot of... Um, funding will start disappearing, the crisis will get forgotten, and I think it's crucial that we don't forget that. MSF is one of the NGOs that is providing secondary care. Um, There's a lot of NGOs providing primary care, not that many providing secondary care. So if MSF were not there, I think that secondary care, so more serious illnesses, there'd be a huge gap, and people would ultimately die because they can't get treated. Going forward into the next year, I think it's vital, MSF's work there is vital. Now that the initial news rush is over, as it were, I definitely fear that it will become the forgotten um, tragedy, the forgotten people. So I think it's key that MSF stay and continue working there, even when the television cameras or the news cameras aren't there, because the need will still be there. And that's something that I think MSF is one of the few NGOs that operate like that and they can do that. After being separated on the journey to Bangladesh, 14-year-old Ishmael was fortunate enough to find his parents and sisters after arriving in the camp. However, returning home to Myanmar is still not an option for Ishmael's family. I found my family. Allah made me find them. If I had not found them, I would have died by now. We will not go back, only if they recognize the Rohingyas. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Emergency. MSF has maintained an increased presence in Cox's Bazaar since the mass exodus of Rohingya in 2017. We've provided healthcare, water and sanitation, mental health and outreach services. Between August 25th, 2017 and August 20th, 2018, we carried out over 650,000 consultations and admitted more than 13,000 patients. Now, if you're listening to this podcast in the UK close to its release date, we're running an appeal for our work in Bangladesh until early 2019. If you would like to support the work of our teams, we would hugely appreciate it. Go to msf.org.uk slash podcast. That's msf.org.uk slash p-o-d-c-a-s-t to find out more. Or, if you're not in the UK and listening to this at some point in the future, you can help us prepare for the next emergency by giving to our general funds. Go to msf.org to find out where you can donate. I would like to say a huge thank you to Robbie Pyburn, our audiovisual intern who produced this podcast. We'd also like to thank Eddie Arnold, who voiced Ishmael's testimony. As always, it's your likes, comments and shares that help spread the word about this podcast and the work of MSF. If you can, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thank you.
For more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies, subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast.